What if the prime function of our memory wasn't about thinking about the past, but preparing us for the future? We talked to the cognitive scientist Adam Bully about foresight, our capacity to imagine future events and organize our current decisions and actions accordingly. In his new book, The Invention of Tomorrow, Adam and his co-authors, Thomas Sudendorf and Jonathan Redshaw, give us a fascinating understanding of how the ability to think about the future propelled humanity. We look at the role of memory and foresight, how foresight and innovation are entwined, where foresight and morality intersect, and how developing foresight can prevent us from becoming too short-termist. This is another brilliant guest with a fascinating set of insights grounded in ingenious research. So tune in for a fun show. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you doing today, Mr. Gomes? I am feeling a, a little bit weary because I've been up uh, quite early. And because we are talking to somebody across the other side of the world, it's late here, but I don't care at all because it's going to be wonderful. So I'm, I'm feeling a little tired, but uh, very excited to have our uh, our guest. How are you feeling? I'm feeling quite energized, actually, because typically <laughs> when we record these shows, it's my morning time, and it's one of the first things I do, and today it's the convenient time for me of 3 p.m., so uh, I feel your pain, but I'm feeling really good about this time slot. <laughs> and I'm feeling really excited, uh, as I normally am, but particularly today, because I'm just loving um, our guest's work. Today, we're joined by Adam Bully. Adam is a cognitive scientist based at the Brain and Mind Center and School of Psychology at the University of Sydney, Australia. He is also affiliated with the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. His research focuses on how people make decisions about the future, and we're really eager to talk to him today as his new book has just been released called The Invention of Tomorrow. Adam, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Thanks so much for having me. Adam, welcome to the show. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. It's uh, it's a nice sunny day this side of the planet. I'm I'm down in uh, Sydney, Australia, uh, so it's my morning, and uh, yeah, no, it's great to be here, and looking forward to the conversation. Excellent. Well, let's get to know you a bit. Can you give us a, a quick tour of your life as a young person, and what led you into your research and career? So I'm uh, originally from from London. I don't know if you can tell from the accent, but uh, I grew up in in Singapore. And uh, I, I moved to the University of Queensland in, in Brisbane, Australia for my, my undergraduate degree. Became really fascinated with the, the human mind, uh, consciousness, how people make decisions. And during my, my undergrad, I, I watched a lecture by my um, co-author on the, on the book that I think we'll, we'll talk about a bit today, Thomas Sudendorf, uh, all about how people think about the future. And, and one, of, um, one of the points that Thomas made in, in that lecture that I, I watched was that when we think uh, about memory, we, we tend to think it's all about the past, but really memory is useful because it enables you to prepare for the future. I just thought that was a really interesting point of view, mm. and I ended up doing my, my PhD with Thomas at the University of Queensland, uh, all about essentially how people make choices when the outcomes play out only over time. 
And uh, we've ever since, basically, I've taken many different angles to that question. So I've, I've studied uh, that some, some work with child, child development, work on the evolution of the ability, how it works in the brain, how it works in cognition. Uh, and basically just, yeah, multiple angles to this question about essentially how people make decisions about the future. So let's just dive right into your book, because your book, The Invention of Tomorrow, is really fascinating, packed full of interesting research and ideas. Can you start by giving us your pitch for the book? Who's this book for, and what will your audience gain from reading it? Yeah, the, the book is all about the cognitive science of foresight, which uh, we could take that ability, define it really as the uh, capacity to imagine future events and organize our current decisions and actions accordingly. Um, we, we tackle that from multiple angles. So we, we talk about where it comes from in evolution, how it develops in childhood and how it works in the brain and, and ultimately how we can get better at using this uh, powerful capacity. And the book is for a, it's a, it's for a general audience. So we hope that basically anyone should be able to pick it up and get something useful out of it. Um, the reason that we've written it at the moment, I mean, we've been working, the three of us, Thomas Sudendorf, Jonathan Redshaw, and I have been working on these topics for many years together in a kind of scientific context, but we thought it'd be fun, really, to, to team up and bring this to a wider audience. And particularly now, because as you know, we're navigating into some really uh, trying and, and difficult times, there's a lot of um, you know, big problems on the horizon. And so our argument in the book is that it's kind of high time to understand how we think ahead and how the ability for foresight um, works. And, and ultimately, it, it's something that drove us to our current position on the planet. And so it might also be, you know, one of our only ways to navigate out of it into a, a future worth looking forward to. And so that's basically why we've put this book together now. And um, yeah, it should, like I said, it's, it's for a general audience. So hopefully it's, um, it's useful to anyone who picks it up. So our, our ability to think about the future it comes so effortlessly to us. Um, and we spend so much time there that we take it for granted. So can we start with why you think uh, mental time travel, um, this remarkable capability, how and why did it evolve? Yeah, so in the book, we take as our starting point the split from the um, from the ancestors of modern humans and the line leading to chimpanzees some six or seven million years ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, the first thing to note is that other animals relative to human beings seem to have very limited foresight indeed, uh, at least relative to what we can do. And so the question is, well, how did that happen? How is it that human beings have access to the fourth dimension and can traverse the span of ages in their mind's eye? Uh, whereas other animals, they do have some future oriented capacities, but nowhere near on the same level as, as we have. And we provide some plausible accounts in the book. This is by no means a settled and, and completely understood process. But at a broad brush, it might just be useful to really contemplate for a moment the function or the evolutionary advantage of this ability. So foresight, like you said, it's, it's so uh, we do it so intuitively and it's so natural to us that it's easy to take it for granted. But it really is the domain general capacity that enables you to represent threats and opportunities in advance. It gives you time to prepare for things that might happen in the future. Uh, it unlocks the ability to do things like make tools before they're actually needed. Uh, it gives us the ability to make traps, to, to hunt new kinds of prey. Uh, it enables you to prov uh, prepare provisions in advance to gather materials for a fire, to deliberately practice, to acquire skills that you don't need right now, but you might need uh, later on. Uh, it also enables us to do new kinds of collaboration and cooperation because it's uh, essential for working together in a team to achieve a shared goal. Um, and so that, that gives us some of the why 
of the of the ability. Like, you know, what what is it about this capacity that would have been favoured in evolution? Uh, in in other words, what is its its function or its its advantage? As for the how, you know, over time, over the last few million years, how this ability actually evolved in our hominin lineage. In the book, we we lay out a uh, kind of a few different ways this could have happened, but ultimately it comes down to a kind of feedback loop between our technologies, our social circumstances, and our personal individual foresight uh, that over the last few million years with lots of fits and starts and and by no means in a linear way has produced this extension of our time horizon into the future uh, more and more so that uh, as we stand today, um, we are vastly better at thinking ahead and preparing for the future than I would say any other species that has ever existed. Hmm. So the implications are all in your previous answer, but just just to uh, kind of stay with this a moment longer, what what would have happened had we not evolved this human foresight capability? What if that didn't occur? What would have maybe happened in yeah. your estimation to our species? Yeah, I mean, our hypothesis in the book, I'd like to think, is essentially that without foresight, you also lack many of the quintessentially human things that make us such a powerful force on the planet. So, you know, there's no moving into difficult, complex environments such as when we migrated around the planet. Uh, there's no complex multi-step technologies that involve both the um, putting together of multiple different parts in advance of when the tool is needed, as well as the technological proficiency to to practice towards a future goal, uh, you get mm. you would get you you wouldn't see the kinds of social coordination and cooperation that it really is characteristic of our species now, because foresight is essential for things even as simple as making a promise or an obligation, uh, because mm. it involves me saying to you that in the future I will come good on something. So you don't get economies, you don't get trade, you don't get writing, because writing is ultimately about laying down some information in the present for use later in the future uh, as a kind of way to offload our, our our memory capacities. And so really all of these different abilities that we would consider so important to understanding humanity, foresight is a line that really runs through most, if not all of them. You just mentioned memory and you said something in your in your um opening remarks about memory. Can you can you stay with that for a minute and tell us a little bit more about the role memory plays in foresight? Yeah, memory is essential for foresight in many ways and in, in the book we use this metaphor of a mental time machine that enables you to go both backwards and forwards across the fourth dimension in your mind's eye. Um that's it's a metaphor but it it speaks to something quite profound which is that when you're imagining the future, one of the things you're really doing is taking bits and pieces of memories that you've accrued through your life so far and combining them to imagine a future scenario that might occur based on what you've experienced thus far. So memory is kind of like the raw material for foresight. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that, for example, if you lose your access to your memories for the episodes of your life, you also lose the ability to imagine future episodes of your life, things that might occur to you uh, down the track. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they are really two sides of the same coin. Hmm. And when you start to think of it like that, you have this idea of memory being imperfect. It didn't develop to be a perfect recall system, but more to help you plan for the future. And you get into the research showing around how we never really remember things the same. We construct that memory depending on the situation hmm. that we're in. 
it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It feel if that feels true when you try and recall things, you can recall them differently depending on what's going on. Yeah. So for a while, I worked with uh, Daniel Schachter at Harvard, who who has written a fantastic book called The Seven Sins of Memory, where he he basically goes through and documents all the different ways that our memory systems can go awry. And, you know, to some extent, those errors of memory, those those problems with our memory systems, they can start to make more sense when you look at memory as not so much a, a system for incorruptible record keeping, which is what you would have liked to have designed if uh, if you were, you know, a lawyer or something, but instead, uh, it's a system that natural selection has produced to help us survive and reproduce. And so, natural selection doesn't really care all that much about the precise veracity of our memories. It cares about what our memories do for us moving forwards, because the time runs in one direction, and any animal with a memory system is going to be navigating into an uncertain future using those memories essentially as a to, to help them prepare in advance for what might happen. And so the errors of memory start to make a bit more sense once you view the the system not as you know you're you're basically using the wrong benchmark when we can, when we look at it in terms of pure accuracy. Uh, if we look at it in terms of its functions, then uh, things become a bit more clear. So let's skip back to this topic that we just uh, raised earlier on around the way foresight and innovation are entwined with one another. Can can you bring to life some of the research and uh, you know ways in which you've come to understand how that that relationship works? Yeah, the relationship between foresight and innovation I think is very intimate. Uh, ultimately, uh, when you innovate something what you're really doing is, uh, is is taking into account what has worked before, recognizing the the potential in some new idea, and then realizing the future utility of what you've come up with. And so Thomas, the co-author on this book, Thomas Sudendorf, has, has kind of advocated for almost a re- redefinition of innovation in terms of the recognition of the future utility of some kind of tool or process or, in, or, or, or any kind of uh, change that you make to some product. Uh, or practice. Uh, if you think about what other animals do when they create tools, generally they use those tools and then they'll discard what they've created. They don't carry it with them for future use over and over and over again, making modifications to it. But what humans tend to do after using a tool is if it looks like it's going to be useful again in the future, you keep it with you, you make minor adjustments to it, you improve it, you pass it to other people, you trade it, you share it, you steal it. And that enables the kind of cultural evolutionary process where we're creating new ideas using foresight and then passing on those ideas to other people. And in fact, that other side of the coin when it comes to cultural evolution is also quite fa- quite far-sighted because to teach someone something involves representing what they don't know in the present and then attempting to shape their mind towards expertise in some domain uh, that they will find useful. Uh, when they come to face those challenges later. This is so interesting to me. Um, and I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about, um, you know, there's a, there's a host of implications in this in, in, in terms of our um, responsibility uh, for our planned actions, and also our ability to reflect on past decisions. So what have you learned and uncovered about how this ability um, impacts our sort of morality? 
Yeah, I think one way of thinking about this is that foresight is really the wellspring of responsibility because only by imagining the future consequences of our current actions do we gain any kind of ownership over them. And mm. on the flip side of that, generally speaking, in multiple cultures across the planet, you're judged on uh, the basis of your foresight. So if you could have, mm. if you could foresee the consequences of your actions, the negative consequences, and you proceed in any case, then you're judged more harshly than if you simply did not foresee what could have gone wrong. Right. And so foresight is actually really integral to our notions of morality, both in terms of, of the judgment that we dish out to other people, uh, but also in terms of the responsibility that we ourselves feel, uh, because we are in, in essence custodians over the future both of both our own personal future because we can foresee multiple different ways that everything could play out and we have to select one or the other uh, as well as our social responsibilities for instance because we're capable of imagining the downstream consequences of our present decision making as a society on future generations of people uh, and so in both cases foresight is is actually the the source of our responsibility and and the uh, kind of spur to action it gives us our intuitive sense of free will that you know we're the ones steering steering the ship and we better uh, get it right how how does that work with because um, i'm thinking about you know how a child develops over uh, the course of um the years into an adult and we, we have amazing imaginations amazing ability even right from the beginning but our ability to actually envisage our responsibility probably takes longer to, to develop so how does things like metacognition our ability to to imagine what that looks like from somebody else's perspective sit alongside foresight do you think yeah there's a, a interestingly around age four many of these things actually come online together. So uh, the ability to really represent the, the mind of other people, what psychologists call theory of mind, uh, and the ability to imagine your own mind in the future, uh, to, to, for example, realize that even if I'm not hungry right now, I will be hungry later. Uh, that, that's a, an important milestone in development because it's, it's the moment that you get behaviors like preparation in advance of a desire or a need that you don't feel now, but you will feel later. Um, and so uh, across development, you see this, these kind of, these connected development of these abilities. In the book, we really argue that metacognition is absolutely um, essential for really powerful foresight because it enables you to reflect, even at a very young age, on the fact that you don't know exactly what the future holds. And so it's not enough to simply have a, a, a one-track vision of exactly what's going to happen if you're a you know, young, developing mental time traveler. Instead, what you need and what you get around this, this young age of, of four or five is a realization that your plans can be thwarted and that your predictions are not fact. They are just predictions and you could be wrong. So this is when you see the really the rudiments of things like contingency planning. Not, not just preparing in advance for one possibility, but instead preparing for multiple mutually exclusive ways the future could play out. And metacognition is key to that. And, and as you've, you, you've done this research, yeah, what have you learned about our capacity to perhaps harness this and improve it? You know, I'm thinking about, you know, organizations and leaders wanting to 
yeah um, get better at, at scenario planning and things like that is that is is this a muscle that can be improved with practice or or any particular types of activity yeah i think there's really good reasons to hope that we can in fact make you know get better at, at foresight one thing to point out first is that there's a kind of optimistic take on this which is that we really are the most if we are the most far-sighted creature that has ever existed then all of our shortcomings of foresight, you know, that the short termism we see in politics uh, and and in uh, in business and elsewhere, is judged relative to a benchmark that we ourselves have set, uh, a kind of far sighted benchmark. So we 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 are clearly capable of imagining uh, using our our mental time machines and, and harnessing our foresight for the better. And so when we fall short, uh, at least we have something to strive towards. Um, there's many different biases in foresight that it pays to be aware of. Things like the optimism bias, which is where we tend to be, you know, more more optimistic perhaps about our own personal and collective futures than than we should be given the objective facts. Uh, but I'm not sure that that itself is a problem. Um, the the problem is more that it is when optimism gets carried when we get carried away with optimism and and we don't apply a kind of logical skepticism to our foresight. And so one of the things that we've argued previously is that it really pays to apply a kind of skepticism to your own foresight. And it comes back to that metacognition thing we were talking about a moment ago, realizing that when you predict the future, you're just imagining something Mm. gives you the ability to attempt to correct and change what you uh, do in the present much more than if you if you treat your vision as fact. And um, so, you know, many of the problems, I think, with foresight is when people treat their imagined futures as fact rather than taking a bit of stock of what, you know, what it really is, which is just a fiction that your brain is cooking up. And uh, I'll just point people towards a couple of really interesting um, books on this. I, I recently wrote a, a short piece which is, has just come out, uh, which is a list of the five best books on harnessing the power of, of foresight for good or something like that it's it's basically all about you know okay you take the cognitive science of foresight that's all well and good but then how do you put that to good use um books like bina uh, venkatraman's the optimist telescope uh, or richard fisher's new book the long now um your your listeners might be interested to see the kind of practical implications in in business politics and and elsewhere and those are good starting points excellent well we'll put that in the show notes yeah good yeah thanks you mentioned short-termism, and as I'm listening to you talk about harnessing the power of uh, foresight, I'm also thinking about our species' um, you know, uh, ability or um, sort of um, predisposition in many ways to ignoring our foresight, right? They put, they've been putting, you know, cancer warnings on cigarette packs and mm. we know what's happening with uh, CO2 and climate change. And, you know, people often just don't want to think about that because they're just sort of stuck in on the life they're living now and what that means for them and how they want to think about the world. Right. So, and their role in it. So what, if anything, did your research uncover about our profound mistakes we make with that in terms of ignoring our foresight yeah i think there's there's um that's a very astute point of course it's really important not to equate foresight in the cognitive sense with something like clairvoyance you know the ability to actually know what's going to happen we are incredibly flawed when it comes to predicting the future i mean we talked about how shockingly bad our memories can be 
well, the future hasn't even happened yet. And so you're applying the same tools of memory that you would apply to the past, which has happened and we have good evidence about, uh, to a, a completely uncertain and unknown world. And so it's really uh, remarkable that we can do this at all. But uh, and so and, and it's unsurprising that it comes with plenty of, of errors. So, yeah, we often get it wrong. Um, and I think some of the things to, to bear in mind about what, you know, when we are getting it so badly wrong uh, is that recognizing the flaws, it pays to adopt new techniques to work around those flaws. So, for example, um, pre-commitment devices uh, can be incredibly helpful for uh for individual people as well as society. So at the individual level, I might adopt a pre-commitment to, you know, flush my cigarettes down down the toilet uh, or, you know, throw them away. Probably not the most environmentally friendly thing to, to flush them down the toilet, but <laughs> you, get the, you get the point. Um, as, as a way to basically pre-commit in advance that I will not uh, smoke them or, or I might hide my donuts at the back of the pantry because I know that if I see them, then I'm likely to give in to a, a temptation but even something like a constitution, uh, you know, a political constitution, is a, it has been th- can be thought of as a kind of pre-commitment device. The philosopher uh, John Elster has made the argument that pre-commitments essentially set up bindings or rules or, or uh, you know, chain us to the mast when uh, our, you know, to prevent in advance from emotions spilling over. And so they protect our best interests when we are thinking rationally and coldly about the future as opposed to when we're being reactive to some present immediate concern. And so those are, that's just an example of a kind of technique that really only emerges once you recognize the flaws of foresight and how mm. to work around them. Um, I'll just say one other thing about the limits of foresight. So, you know, you talk about people with the climate crisis, for example, just neglecting it. And uh, there can actually be very rational, good reasons that people don't act uh, in favor of long-term outcomes. So if you're in an environment that's incredibly dangerous and uncertain, then the rationale for delaying gratification and being patient and waiting and preparing for a long-term future is undercut because Mm -hmm. you're, you know, you might not be around all that long to reap the benefits of patience. And that doesn't mean that those people in those contexts are impulsive or short-sighted. It means that what we can do is use our foresight flexibly to decide when it pays off to wait and be patient and when the better thing to do is get what you can now. And so ultimately, one of the best ways to improve people's foresight is not really to target foresight itself at all, but it's to improve people's living conditions and the stability so that they can start to plan long term uh, and it makes more mm-hmm. sense for them to do so. It's like my grandfather used to say, if I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> That's great. One of the areas, Adam, that, that we are really interested in is, is the work. We've had several futurologists on the show and one in particular, Monica Belasquito, was talking about how all too often futurologists are actually extrapolating the negative um, uh, scenarios of, of, of things that are going wrong today and are coming up with fairly gloomy outcomes, where she believes that the role of futurologists should be to try and create positive, optimistic um, scenarios that we can then get behind trying to engineer. How do you feel uh, our, our capacity for foresight works with that? Yeah, I think I basically completely agree with that point because, as we were just mentioning a moment ago, 
If you foresee the future as a place that's really grim, uncertain, dark, dangerous, um, futile, pointless, the, the behaviors that that will actually engender, it's, it's really not that hard to imagine how people react. Um, mm. they, they would rationally prioritize the present because the payoffs of their current actions are pitched to them as really, really not that good at all. Uh, and so people are incredibly flexible and efficient at prioritizing their actions over time. And so we talk about that in the, in the context of what you might define as intertemporal choice. So choices where the, the outcomes play out over time. The, uh, the rationale of waiting for a delayed payoff uh, is, is heavily affected by the, the uh, context, but it's also heavily affected by the vision that we have of the future. And so, um, as you just mentioned, if you instead, you know, of, of picture painting the, pic the future as a picture of dystopian dangers, uh, instead of that, you, you foresee the future as a place where there's a lot of potential, um, then that will in engender the kinds of behaviors that will actually make that real. And so there's an interesting, um, interesting point there about basically balancing the costs and benefits of optimism which we talked about uh, briefly earlier, where, yes, it pays to be skeptical about the future and about our own optimism and to be a little bit realistic about what we can actually achieve. But it also pays to harness optimism because optimism can rally support behind uh, big goals. So you think about even something like, um, you know, the, the, the moon landings. The audacious optimism there was probably a major causal factor in that actually working in the end. Um, it, it's if if uh, if you lay out too too you know grim and and realistic an approach, and you just focus on all the ways that things can go wrong, you're not going to harness the kind of collaborative support that is so essential for um, for making a difference and making a positive change. If you're new to us on the Evolving Leader podcast, please subscribe to us on your favourite platform. We have many more thought-provoking and inspiring guests coming up this season, and you won't want to miss them. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Thanks for listening. So Adam, we've had uh, other neuroscientists on the show, such as Dr. Bo Lotto, who talked about how we don't see things as they are, but as they were useful to see at some point in the past. In other words, none of us are perceiving an accurate, objective reality. So how much of our brain's foresight is rooted in our own subjective, biased view of reality? So my first hunch when it comes to answering that question is to say uh, all of it, but that's mm. a little cheeky. What I'm really, what, I'm, <laughs> what I would be, uh, the reason I'd be tempted to answer that way is to- is Are you because, talking about Scott in particular? Yeah. <laughs> his, his own subjective biased view of yeah. reality, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> the reason is because ultimately when we're imagining the future, literally all we can do is draw on what we have ourselves personally experienced thus far in the past. And even when we're mm. trying to create, you know, detailed scientific models, um, we are using evidence from the past and attempting to extrapolate it out. Uh, you, you know, the counter, counter examples might be things like trying to determine laws about the way, you know, th systems will operate. Nonetheless, you, in order to create those laws, there's still an, an, an element of drawing on the past in order to imagine what's going to happen next and predict what's going to happen next. Um, with that said, it's 
the usefulness of uh, of foresight comes from the correspondence between what we actually envisage and what actually happens. So foresight is a kind of imagination in a sense because you're you're like I said earlier you're conjuring something up in the theater of your mind but it's a very constrained kind of imagination if it's going to be useful at all. So we have to uh, realize that it's it's not enough to just be completely fanciful and creative um, and and biased in the way that we imagine the future. Instead, uh, we have to steer specifically towards futures that we actually want to inhabit. And there again, there is a, a sort of a balance there, and there's a trade-off between being too, you know, what you might call overfitted in your model of the future, where you just simply take an, a memory about what has happened in the past and you just transplant it like a surgeon into the future and and use that as your your template and your guide star for how to act so that's a very strict kind of um potentially overfitted and constrained way of foreseeing the future on the other hand you can be incredibly creative and open-ended and recursive because foresight essentially what we can do is combine any of these different elements from memory in new constellations and so really you could you can imagine anything um it's been talked about in terms of the ability to imagine whatever whenever and wherever so you've got all these different possibilities in front of you so that's that's the very creative and unconstrained version and so finding a middle ground between those uh is a is incredibly important if foresight is to be used productively essentially um and again that i think that occurs both for individual people as well as as for businesses um you want a degree of creativity when you're imagining the future uh but i don't think you want so much creativity uh that that you lose uh, or you become unmoored from the the underlying realities of of what you're actually trying to achieve and that kind of points, I think, a little bit into this direction of we are in this increasingly uncertain environment. And there's some interesting research where you're showing how people's orientation to the past, present and future is associated with their mental health, their mm. attitudes to risk and so on. So what, what have you learned about foresight and well-being and what can we, what can we take forward with that? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. There's obviously, you know, in some ways, foresight is essential to well-being, at least uh, independent well-being, because it's the ability that enables you to organize your your life. Um, it enables you to set goals, to keep keep uh, intentions in mind, act towards achieving the att- intentions that you you want to enact. Uh, so you know, even stuff as simple as going to the grocery store, uh, or buying medicine, or making a plan for the weekend. Uh, all of that relies on foresight, and so well-being is is really uh, tied up in having this functioning well. Um, unfortunately, though, f- because of the fact that foresight is so open-ended and cre- and can be so creative, that also gives us access to some of the most you know heinous and horrible um, stage mental mental productions that you could imagine. So you could you know you could be just sitting down, and if you're not you know, actively trying to meditate or something, your brain will conjure up any number of, of negative possible futures for mm-hmm. you to to entertain and envisage. And so I think it's not an exaggeration to really say that our, that, that human anxiety comes in large part from 
our ability for foresight. And so it really is a double-edged sword, uh, not only because foresight can can be so f- prone to error, as we already talked about, but because it can produce a lot of suffering. Um, it enables us to, to see things that we would perhaps rather not imagine. Uh, and we can even get really meta about it and worry about our own worrying. And so Adrian Wells, the clinical psychologist, has argued that this kind of meta worry where you're not just worrying about a thing, you're worrying about the fact that you can't stop worrying. You know, that is where anxiety becomes really uh, clinically uh, meaningful and and, um, even more reticent and difficult. Mm -hmm. Well, so I'm thinking about leaders uh, listening to this right now all around the world, and there's so much to take with them um, in everything you've said. But, you know, the work that we do with, many leaders is all around learning how to test our assumptions right about the mm. future and about our ideas so i'm wondering as with the time we have left i'm wondering if we could land on this idea of testing our assumptions and how do we how do we get more effective and efficient at that yeah i think so i've heard you talk on this podcast about uh, about you know mindset and and, and challenging assumptions and I think ultimately uh, that really resonates with one of the key arguments in the book, which is that foresight itself is useful and it's very powerful, but some of the greatest powers of human foresight, both over the course of evolution as well as in our modern lives, uh, comes come actually from our uh, comes actually from our ability to reflect on the limits of our foresight. So it's it's not so much that we can predict the future, but it's that we know that our predictions of the future are wrong or can be wrong hmm. uh, you know that's really that's really the source of a lot of the the really powerful features of foresight so to give you a, a concrete example coming back to every you know something we talked about at the beginning of the conversation um, something as simple as a contingency plan um, that is the result of realizing that when you imagine the future what you're anticipating may not come true because you cannot foresee the future with certainty hmm. And so uh, what we advocate for in the book in terms of challenging assumptions is to say, okay, I assume that X will happen and then Y will happen. Uh, But instead, what we really need is a a much broader conceptualization of the future where we we try to to entertain multiple mutually exclusive ways that the future could play out and prepare for all of them in advance. Obviously, there's a resource constraint kind of trade-off here because you you can't make concrete plans for everything. But what we're advocating for instead is, is really just at least in the you know at least entertaining multiple futures, uh, ways that the future could play out, and taking advantage of the uh, reflection and the powers that we gain from reflecting on the limits of our foresight. Um, so that includes things like enacting uh, contingency plans, but it also includes some of the things we talked about, in, you know, around um, pre-commitment devices. And Gary Klein has talked about uh, pre-mortems. You know, imagine that you're starting a new project. Now imagine that it has failed, you know, five years down the line. Now, why did it fail? You know, entertain why it might have failed and walk through the steps that led to that failure. And what that does is it really gets the gears turning in people's imaginations uh, and it enables them to entertain multiple possible ways that a project can go wrong and then attempt to rectify those in advance. Uh, and it also gets people willing to share 
uh, their kind of skepticisms about the projects, which they might otherwise keep to themselves because they get caught up in the the optimism and the and the kind of gung ho attitudes that can um, can really kick off any new venture. Um, and so, yeah, I think ultimately, just to kind of put to to, to sort of wrap that up, um, challenging our own assumptions is really the core of getting anything useful out of our uh, mm. mental time machines at all. Mm. Adam, mm. Um, I, I, you know, I really do recommend this book to our, our listeners because yeah. it is just full of both really interesting, um, just things that make you uh, understand yourself better, but also some really practical things as well that we can all do. What are you working on at the moment? What's next for you? So I've been working on some um, research around how people make uh, these decisions about the future, but specifically taking that metacognition piece of the puzzle mm. more seriously and asking people not just to make decisions about the future, but also to reflect on how confident they are in those decisions. And so what we've been looking at is, for example, whether people's confidence in whether they're making the right choice about the future, uh, what, you know, what, what exactly does that reflect? What are the sources of our confidence in our judgments? Um, and, and then what can we use that to do? So for example, we found that when people are, are less confident that they're making the right choice about the future, well, those are the decisions that are most liable to influence and change. And so that, that could be both, uh, quite useful if you're trying to, you know, nudge people towards making more farsighted choices. Um, but it could also be, uh, you know, an interesting point, uh, from, for the basic science of trying to understand exactly what it is that, that leads people to make you know, one choice over another and why particular choices are more difficult for people. Um, yeah, so that's just a, an example of something I'm, I'm tackling right now. Well, Adam, my foresight was accurate today because I fully expected to enjoy our conversation and I've loved every minute of it. And I could talk to you for hours more, but John has to go to bed now. So we're going to have to. <laughs> uh, thanks, for, thanks for staying up, John. And uh, yes, yeah, oh, it I, was I really an absolute pleasure. It's not that it. late, but um, no. <laughs> it, it, uh, it was definitely worthwhile. Well, I have to just underscore what John's said already, which is um, to, to our listeners. Stop whatever you're doing right now and order your copy of The Invention of Tomorrow. You will absolutely love it. And until next time, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? Are you?